So today we're starting a new series, a new series for the new year. I'm not holding back today, so I hope you're kind of buckled up and ready to go. Kind of packed some punches this morning. Now as the new year begins, I'm not sure if I can still say Happy New Year, but I have. So as the new year begins, there's often a lot of talk, isn't there, about stuff you're going to start doing, stuff you're going to stop doing as the new year begins. Did you know that apparently most New Year's resolutions only last three weeks? So the good news is you're a third of the way through. That's the good news. Let me encourage you with that. Now, we would say as a church that of all the great things that you could attempt to do this year in 2023, the best resolution that you could make, both for yourself and for those around you, is to grow in your discipleship to Jesus. Now, as Jesus' disciples, as his apprentices, there's always this danger, isn't there, that we get stuck, that we end up living the same year with Jesus on repeat, year after year after year. And here at Vineyard, we want to be a community that makes sure that just doesn't happen. We want to take discipleship to Jesus both seriously and joyfully for our sake, but also to see this city restored and this nation renewed. Amen. Okay, and I don't know about you, but I want to get to the end of this year and be like, I have grown so much in my faith, so much in my discipleship to Jesus. I mean, the 2022 me, I mean, I was like a baby in my faith. 2023, wow, did I grow. Does anyone else want that for this year coming? Is that what you want for 2023? To be more and more living the life that Jesus would live if he were you. To know the freedom and joy that comes from living this way. I said, that's what I want. And I so dearly want that for us as a whole church. And to this end, if you've been around us for any length of time, for some of you, this will be new stuff, just take in what you can. But for any of you that have been around us for some time, you'll know that we have created this discipleship framework called Live Like Jesus. And we've talked loads and loads over the last couple of years about what it means to be disciples um, to Jesus. And we do this both by being with Jesus and by doing what Jesus did. And like we shamelessly nicked John Mark Comer, who's an American, who was a pastor, and now he's just pressing into all this discipleship stuff. So we've nicked that language totally shamelessly. And over the last few years, we've been looking at practices that help us do one or both of these things, to be with Jesus or to do what Jesus did. Things like, we've looked at things like reading the Bible, prayer, advancing the kingdom, living an open life to those around us. Does any of this sound like familiar territory to some of you? Thank you. I'll take that as a reach. Imagine if like, oh, like awkward silence, I just put down my mic and go home. And you know, as we embrace this discipleship lifestyle, as we embed these practices more and more into our daily lives, a transformation process takes place within us. And it is all powered by the Holy Spirit. I just want to read these verses out. I didn't give them to Luke, so sorry, Luke. I'll just read them out. Just listen. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now where the Lord is the Spirit, and where now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. We're being transformed to live like Jesus with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is the Spirit that empowers this transformation process to live like Jesus. That is essentially what discipleship is. It's this process of transformation of moving from here to there. And alongside some of these practices that we need to embed in our lives, things like reading the Bible, prayer, things like that, there's also some principles that need to be understood and worked through. You know, perhaps things need to be broken off off us, old patterns of thinking and living in order to see that real transformation. 
Um, and if you remember last year, we looked at one of these kind of principles, the importance of pursuing holiness in our lives. If you remember, we looked at how a call to the holy life is God's best for us, not his burden for us. And today, as we start a new series, I want to look at another one of these principles. We are going to be looking at the concept of identity. Uh, identity, who am I? Who do we perceive or experience ourselves to be? And understanding who we are is, of course, fundamental to how we then live our lives. I mean, it would be hard to underestimate the impact that under, understanding our identity or misunderstanding our identity can have both on ourselves and on those around us, those people that we live amongst who are the receiving end of the us that we perceive ourselves to be. Now, we've called this series Live Like Jesus, Become Who You Are. And what we mean by that is, is, uh, is about living increasingly from the place of who God says you are. Now, you might be like, why didn't you call it Become Who God Says You Are? What I want you to understand is they are one and the same thing. Who God says we are is who you are. If that's who the one who created you says who you are, that is who you are. Become who you are and become who God says you are from our Christian perspective is one and the same thing. Now, of course, the concept of identity, I mean, it's like very much in our cultural conversation right now, isn't it, that the world is having. Current culture would probably agree at first glance at this notion of become who you are. This idea is at the heart of phrases you will see and hear every day, especially if you go on social media. You know, you do you, be true to yourself, that kind of thing. However, the difference comes that the predominant Western worldview right now would source this journey of understanding yourself, this journey of knowing who you are, your identity. They would source it as a purely inward one. You, know, you are the God of yourself, the creator of yourself, and you need to find the, tree, the true you deep down. Nietzsche, who was an atheist philosopher in the 1800s, said this, Become who you are. It's the same phrase. Become who you are. Do what only you can do. Be the master and sculptor of yourself. And he said he wrote this in the 1800s, but he has had such influence on how we continue to think today that actually what would have been really controversial when he said it then is now the mantra that people live by. In fact, it's now controversial to think anything different to what Nietzsche said. There is no God, you are God, the creator of yourself, so you do you. Find out who you are deep inside and then live authentically from this place. And you do you sounds really liberating and exciting, doesn't it? It kind of seems to offer a path to something real. But there is a problem with it. Christian thinker James K.A. Smith, he's a Canadian theologian, and he points out that it leaves you permanently on a journey of self-discovery. And this can be a lonely journey, as it's one that you have to go on on your own. It pressures you not only to understand yourself well enough to be true to yourself, but also to then have the skills and resources to be able to express that self in the perfect way. And this isn't realistically attainable. In short, this approach is hardwired to produce anxiety in people. As Christians, we think there is a better option available to us, don't we? Our identity is learned from the very being who created us in the first place who knows us most deeply, in, his, in whose image we are made, God himself. Now, that's not to say that self-reflection, self-understanding are not important. They are key to our transformation. So don't mishear me. It is really important to do the hard work of understanding ourselves. You know, a few years ago, I did this uh, spiritual formation course that looked at patterns of behavior in my life, why I reacted defensively in some moments, why I experienced high levels of anxiety at other times. 
and so on. I mean, it was like brutal. <laughs> I mean, it's so hard, isn't it, to ask the most honest questions of yourself. Like, why did I just like jump down that person's throat in that moment? Why did I do that? What did I believe in that moment? Each week there was like tons of homework to do. There was loads of self-reflection exercises. Um, there was loads of content to read. But you know what the hardest task that we had to do was I had to ask those around me, those closest to me, those who experienced me the most, I had to say to them, how do you experience me? And then I had to listen without offering any level of defense. Some of you are like, Alice, why would you sign up to do that, you stupid woman? But there we go. It was tough. It was really tough. It was six months worth of it. But, and Matt would verify this, it was life-changing for me. I'm still clearly on a journey. I mean, any of you that know me will know that I've not arrived at perfection yet, not even close. Come on, 2023. But this period of like, intense kind of self-reflection and doing it all under the banner of the grace of Jesus was so transformational to me. Understanding you and how you tick is key to any level of spiritual transformation. You have to do that hard work. But it's just that we are to go on this journey, not on our own, but with an external, unchanging reference point, God himself. We base our identity from a place of relationship to him. We don't do this on our own, from the place of who he, our creator, says we are. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be answering this very question. Who does God say I am? What truth can we find in scripture about who I am meant to be? Because in order to, know, to become who we are, we have to know who we are. I remember once chatting to a mum friend um, years ago now, um, and she had children older than mine, and mine were very little at this point, and I was struggling with the best way of how to discipline them in like a positive way, not just losing my rag. And she told me that when one of her children had misbehaved, say they'd kind of hit a child or something like that, they hit another child, she used to say this to them. Now, instead of saying, which is what many parents myself might have said to their children, you know, you are a really naughty boy, Instead of saying something like that, she would take the opposite approach and say this, you are a kind boy, not a naughty boy. And that is why mummy is cross you did that. And you know, I took that nugget of God and I've used it with my kids ever since to help them become who I want them to be, not who they were in that moment. In order to become who you are, you have to know who you are. And then, of course, we then do that deep inward reflection of thinking through, well, if, if this is God, if this is who God says I am, what do I falsely believe about myself that means that I don't live from this place? What have I misunderstood? Now, that might sound da daunting, it does to me, to go on this journey, but do take this deep reassurance as we start this series. Take this reassurance from the outset. As I just said, this is a journey powered by the Spirit. The Spirit is able to break off deep patterns of behavior to release us from feelings of shame, to remind us of who we are, because He is much more powerful than us. There are some things that only the Spirit can break off. There's some patterns of thinking that only He can rewire. He is the voice and power of the very Creator Himself. So it's going to be a spiritual journey. And over the course of the series, we're going to look at some of these truths, these kind of that we find in Scripture, kind of I am statements, if you like. Now, it's not going to be totally exhaustive because this series is five weeks long and there's lots in the Scriptures about who we are. But I'm hoping it provides a really helpful foundation for us to work out what is our God-given identity? Who does God say I am? And these, um, these kind of each week, it's not like we introduce a new concept. They're not distinctive standalone concepts. Picture our identity for a moment, just like a beautiful diamond. And what we're doing over the next few weeks is digging for that diamond, mining for that diamond. And each kind of new I am statement, each th concept we look at is like a new facet of that diamond that makes up what is our identity. 
So buckle up. Are you ready? It's going to be a big few weeks. We have been planning for this um, sermon series for some time. I'm really, really excited about what the Lord wants to do across us as a whole church as we become a people who really grow more and more in our understanding and in our living out from our God-given identity. Are you excited? Yes, I hope so. Not just me. That was the intro to the series. So that's me kind of setting it up. Today, with the remainder of our time left, I want to open up some scripture and I want to address um, the first of these truths that we're going to look at. And the first of these I am statements is this. I am a dearly beloved child of God. I am a dearly beloved child of God. And we find this truth, I mean, like throughout the whole of Scripture. I could start from the beginning and end at the end. But let me just share a couple of bits to get us started. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed clothed yourselves with Christ. Or 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You might just want to underline that. That is what I am, a dearly beloved child of God. Understanding this is absolutely foundational to understanding our identity as followers of Jesus. You are God's beloved child. I mean, this should be our starting point, right? Christian writer Brennan Manning says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. And, you know, Jesus, whom we follow, whom we are trying to live like, live like Jesus, lived perfectly from this identity. He understood this identity. At his baptism, as the Spirit descended on him, he heard a voice from heaven. And what did that voice say? You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then Jesus told a story, perhaps his most famous story, to help us understand this identity more fully for ourselves. This identity that we share with him as God's beloved child. It's well known to loads of you. So if this is like a well-known story, you just sit back, relax, enjoy, and ask the Spirit to speak to you afresh through it today. We're in Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, "'How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death?' I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was with with him back safe and sound. 
The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, many of you know this story, but the picture I would love just you to kind of hold in your mind's eyes as we kind of carry on with this talk. The thing that I would love you to think about, um, about as we think about what it means to be a beloved child of God is the moment when the father embraces the son in his arms. Just keep that picture in your mind's eye. Living out our identity as followers of Jesus is learning more and more how to live in the Father's arms from the place of that embrace, to know that you are a deeply beloved child of God. I mean, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? Many of you will have thought about this before. And yet so many of us, if we are honest, struggle to live from this truth as our default identity. David Benner, who's a Christian psychologist and writer, he's brilliant, he said this, He agrees with the Brendan Manning quote at the beginning. Listen to this. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. With sadness, I confess how seldom this is true for me. I think if we're honest, many of us would confess the same. We know this is the right answer to give, if I said, who are you? But it's not, always our, it's not always our lived day out, day in experience. We know it to be true, but it's not always what we experience to be true. It's not that we never feel this way. It's just that we don't always feel this way. We often instead choose to live like the other sons in this story. Maybe we live like the prodigal son before he returned home, when he was distant from his father, feeding pigs, full of shame at having made some pretty bad choices of having been wayward and even when he comes to his senses we're told that he assumes that his father would not have enough grace to welcome him back as a son he's going to have to go back as a slave as a servant he is full of shame or maybe we choose to live like the other son the older brother not physically distant like his brother is perhaps but he is relationally so he sees his father as a taskmaster not as a dad he lives under this religious spirit feeling the need to do, to work like a slave to please his father, to earn his status as a son. He thinks he has to earn that identity as a son. So he doesn't have this voice of shame, but of hard-hearted religiosity. And the Christian life can like be like swinging between these two options as our identity, the wayward son before he returns and the older brother. We don't know if he returns. Both of these options keep us from our father's embrace. Now, it might not feel like as extreme in our own lives as it does in that story. It can definitely be more subtle. But when we live from one of these identities, it keeps us from our father's embrace. It keeps us from understanding our true identity as a beloved child. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, I pray like God owes me something. I get indignant with him. Or I assume he is this hard taskmaster that I have to please in some way that he's just distinctly disappointed in me and I have to keep earning, keep earning. That's the older brother's voice right there speaking. Or other times I can try and present myself in a better light 
than is the reality. That's the shame voice of the wayward son speaking, the voice that says, I'm not good enough and I have to pretend to be more than I am in order to be loved. I have to put my church face on before I come here on a Sunday because if people knew the real me, they wouldn't love me. And of course, it's worth saying, as inside, our experience with our earthly fathers can massively influence which one of those voices we tend to hear, though we do hear them both. Living from a Christian identity, living more and more like Jesus, is to be in your heavenly Father's embrace, hearing not a voice of shame or of a religious spirit, but the Father's words, you are my beloved child, I am well pleased with you. And it's about learning to stay in that place, not just in the lows of life when like, the sheer awfulness of your situation drives you back into the Father's arms, as it did with the wayward son. Not just in those moments, though of course there's grace for those in those moments, but in every moment of every day. So we know this, we know we struggle with this, so how do we do this? Well, just a few observations in finishing, as I may. Firstly, learning how to live in this place, from this identity as a beloved child, is worked out over a lifetime of discipleship to Jesus. That is why, as a church, we want to prioritise our discipleship to Jesus. That's why we're going to keep coming back to live like Jesus. There isn't like this kind of golden bullet here. It's a long obedience in the same direction. I said loads about that at the beginning, so I'm not going to go back into all of that. Secondly, remember, 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 I've already said it again, that this is all fueled by the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus was reminded of his identity at his baptism, as the Holy Spirit fell on him, the same Spirit does the same with us. We can't always summon up from inside ourselves. We can't always do it by our own means. We can't always kind of summon up this awareness of the love of God. Sometimes the other voices around us are just too strong. Sometimes the patterns of thinking and behavior in our lives are just too strong. Just listen to these words in Ephesians 3. And as I read them, just try and notice the role that the Spirit plays in these verses. Verse 16, Ephesians 3. I pray, this is Paul speaking, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a work of the Spirit. And and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power that comes from the Spirit, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you want a definition of what discipleship is, of what it is to live like Jesus, it's to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And you see, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us become aware again of his love for us, this love that surpasses all knowledge. That is why often when we end up praying for people on a Sunday when you do ministry time, they often end up crying, don't they, as they receive the Spirit. There's something in that moment of God reminding them of who they are when we pray for people. Often for me, when I get prayed for, that's the first thing that I get reminded of. Maybe that's not just me. It's the Holy Spirit falling on us that reminds us of who we are. Ministry time and an encounter with the Spirit is like being back in the Father's embrace again. And we realise I've been a wayward son on either direction. Just to say, we run this prayer tool at church called Sozo, which I do want to flag. It's like a wonderful tool that can help you do just that, to get back into the Father's embrace, to come before Father God. It helps you see where you've been living at a distance from him, like where you've been living as the two sons in that story. I've done it a couple of times over the last few years, and I really, really recommend it. Um, There's going to be an email address at sozo at cardiffinyard.org if you want to um, get involved with that, or chat to Dave and Rach or any of the team here, and they can help you go and do that. It's like a one-off prayer session. It's really helpful. Live in the Spirit. Ask him to help you understand your identity as his beloved child. You can't do this on your own. And then lastly, live in the Spirit and then partner with the Spirit. 
When we talk about lots of the practices that help us live like Jesus, things like spending time with him, prayer, reading the scriptures and things like that, what we are talking about is partnering with the Spirit. We're talking about making space for the Spirit in our lives by doing those kind of practices to, allow, to enable the Spirit to then come and do that deep transformation work in us. The truth is many of us feel distance from God from a, we feel distant from God. We feel very distant from a place of knowing our identity as his beloved son or daughter because we never actually spend any time with him. Be with Jesus this week. Like prioritize time with him above anything else that you've got going on this week. Prioritize time with him this week. You know, over Christmas, it's like so easy, isn't it, to lose sight of him. You know, the busyness, the chaos, family coming, going, the lack of structure and whatever. It's so easy to not spend any time with Jesus. Be with Jesus this week. Hear his voice telling you that you are his beloved child. Henry Nouwen, the the amazing Dutch Catholic priest and writer, said this. He was talking about hearing this voice saying, you are my beloved. And he says this, we have to create some solitude in our life so that we don't lose touch with that voice. Otherwise, we keep begging, going around and saying, do you love me? Do you care for me? We become very restless, anxious people who are never sure that we are really safe, that we are really well loved. Literally in the middle of writing this talk, like there was loads of different things going on and I thought I felt really, really kind of just unsettled, anxious, stressed out. And I just had, I wrote this and I just paused. And I was like, do you know what, Jesus? I just need to picture myself back in the embrace of the Father again. I need to know that I'm a dearly beloved child. Just that moment of being like, I've not spent any time with Jesus, like any quality time with Jesus this week. It's all been a bit patchy. And I was like, I just had to stop. And it was an emotional moment, but just that like, do you know what, Jesus? I cannot believe in my own strength that I am dearly loved, that I am safe, that really whatever happens this side of eternity, it will all be well the other side of eternity. I can't live from that space in this moment because I've not really spent any time with you. I've lost touch with that voice. Be with him this week. Spend time in his presence. Read the story of the prodigal son this week, maybe. Meditate on scripture this week and hear his voice. I am God's beloved child.